them. The claim of the Bible is that this is the true story of the world, that this is reality. And what culture would want to tell you is it's cute that you believe that Bible for a little bit. Right, right? That's like your VR headset that you throw on your head. That's what the Bible is. That's what this church thing is. That's what religion is. It's your little private truth that encapsulates just you. But let's be honest. It looks a bit foolish when you're out in the real world. The real world doesn't work like that. The real world's not formed like that. The real world's so much different. There's actually a different reality that we live in. But the claim of the Bible is the exact opposite. The claim of the Bible, the claim of God, the claim that we sit under today as we hear this story is Jesus saying, no, 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 reality is the way that I'm telling it. I've been away from the creation. I was there at the rebellion when Adam and Eve rebelled. That's the second, the X arrow. I was there present when Moses led the people, when Abram led the people as Israel was formed. I was present. I was there. This is the way it took place. And then with that cross, that's the story of Jesus. That's where we're at now. And he's saying, this is reality. His parables, his stories, the way he lived his life was to say, look here, this is what reality looks like. And others tend to be walking around with headsets on, unable to see what's taking place in the real world because of those blinders. And the invitation of Jesus consistently is, take off the headset and see the world as it is. Uh, Take off the headset and see truth for what it is. See freedom for what it is. See healing for how you can get it. This is the story that the Bible tells. Today we're going to be in a parable of Jesus, and I I want us to be able to see real quickly what parables are, because these are stories. Uh, He's going to tell a fictitious story, uh, a made-up story that's meant to tell a point. And so when you enter into a different genre of literature, it's helpful to know a little bit about what's going on in that. And so what you can read on the screen, I'll just read out loud. Parables are often about the surprising nature of God's kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom in a way that few people expected. So Jesus would tell stories that would highlight different dimensions of the kingdom. They often highlight the upside down value system of the kingdom of God. The parables show us how the kingdom of God should reshape our ideas on forgiveness or wealth or social status, and the invitation of God's people to live in this new reality that Jesus had brought. And so today's story is one of those. Uh, Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in to Luke 10 together. Jesus, we're so grateful that you meet with us. Uh, We're grateful that we get to learn a story that you lived. It's wild to think about that as we read these words, they're words that you spoke. And so, Spirit, you're the breath of the living God. Would you speak to us through this story? Uh, Show us ourselves in it. Show us beauty. Show us truth. And would we faithfully take up our role in your story? Uh, We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hopefully you guys have been able to, to get there in your Bibles. If not, I'll have the words on the screen for us. And we're going to move a little slowly through the text, make some notes as we go. Uh, and then see what in the world does this have to do with us. But this story reads, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. 
a few things to take note of. Uh, this teacher, an expert in the law, this was like a religion professor. So the scenery is that uh, this guy is setting up. He walks in uh, and sees Jesus there, and he knows Jesus has a very unique interpretation of human history. He knows that he's proclaiming good news. The kingdom of God is here now, and I'm the rescuer. I'm the Messiah. I'm the deliverer. And he also knows that most of the religious scholars at the time are calling bull. That's not true. That's not what it is. There's no way it could be this guy. We're waiting for somebody who is a mighty, conquering king. And this guy travels around teaching parables. And so what he does is he sets Jesus up with a question that's meant to trip him up. Uh, this is a question that there was an answer for. And so it's not like he came into it saying, hey, I, I'm really inquiring and want to understand the deep things of God and figure out how this world works. Uh, the text says he does it in order to test Jesus, to trip him up, to see what it is that he believes the answer to this question is. It's a catechism answer. The way you answer it shows which side you fall on, and he wanted to trip Jesus up. Jesus, being a master teacher, answers, uh, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? That's what this guy did for a living was study the law, figure out what it was. He couldn't not answer the question. And so he answers it, and he answers it beautifully with two passages, one from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then he said the second, it's from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Any good Jewish person knew that you couldn't separate love of God from love of person. Uh, God has been consistent throughout his story to say, if you love me, you will also love those that I've created. And so the guy answers correctly, and Jesus gives him that, that nice little answer, do this, and you'll live. Do this, and you'll experience life. Do this, and you will have a flourishing life that starts now and continues on for eternity. And isn't that what we've talked about, that we all desperately desire is the good life? We've got some definition for it. And Jesus says, man, the way in my kingdom of a full and flourishing life, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you've got it. The dude's not happy with that answer, though, uh, for very good reason, because he still has him not on the winning side of the argument, and this was an intellectual joust. And so, but he wanted to justify himself. That justify means that he wanted to prove that he was right. He wanted to win the argument. And so he wanted to justify himself. He says, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I think he had a little bit of a, a, little bit of a cocky attitude when he said this, right? He had, a, he had a little swagger. He thought he had put Jesus in the corner that he could then come right at him and tell him what was what. But again, Jesus is a master teacher. He has authority and speaks with power and precision and he can invite people into the story that he's writing in a pretty powerful way. Uh, and this is the story that he tells. In reply, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. The scene, maybe you've heard this story before, going down from going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is a literal statement. Uh, you go down 3,000 feet in just a few miles. And so it's a steep road. It's a treacherous road. It's a road that was called the way of blood in the time when Jesus was around because robbers and thieves would hang out on that road in order to jump fools, right? That's what they did. Uh, 
I remember feeling very close to this text. A few years ago, we were in the Eastern Sahara, and we were driving from one village to another. And as we're coming down in this four-wheel drive vehicle, uh, we're on the backside of the desert doing a little bit of rock climbing, so it's a little bit of overland stuff, which would be cool. Uh, and we're coming down, and we're about to make a switchback, because switchbacks are always just chaos, right? And so we're coming down, and we're about to make the switchback, and the guy that was leading the trip, who was directing the people where to drive, goes, oh, perfect place to tell you, this is where people normally get killed. And uh, I didn't remember that part of the brochure. Um, I didn't remember that part of the conversation that we had pre-trip. And I was like, what'd you just say? And he's like, oh, this is the place that I told you about. And I was like, I do not remember this. And he goes, this is the place where, this is why you couldn't come last year. Because last year this time, uh, as people came down here, they would wait until you had to turn this corner. And you can only go like one mile an hour around the corner that they would just wait on the other side and they would carjack people. I was like, you're kidding me, right? He said, no, you don't remember me telling you this? And I was like, I must have missed it. But he says, this is what would happen is you'd come down this road and as you made the switchback, people would jump you and then they would either, if you had money, you could pay them and they'd let you go or else they just took your car by means of force. And that was just normative. In Jesus' time, that was the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was precarious. It was known to be the place where sketchy people hung out in order to steal from others. And so this dude gets beat down. Strip him of his clothes. He's half dead. The story keeps going. A priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The story is meant to cause you to think a little bit. Wait a second. I thought this was going to be a story about loving your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? And now these two characters that we look at and we normally see as heroes, right? The priest, he was like the varsity level religious leader at the time, the one who stood between the people and God. And then the Levite was like the JV priest, right? So this is both squads coming down the street. And what you see is they they come down and he's very methodical about it. He says, they see the man. It's not that they don't see him. They see him and then pass by on the other side of the road And continue on their way. What Jesus does not do is tell us why. He doesn't tell us why they did it. I think he does that because he wants us to place ourselves in the story. He wants this man that he's telling the story to, to place himself in the story. To read his own reasons into it. And so I want to give us a moment to turn to a few people around you. Why do you think those two guys might have chosen not to get involved with this man on the ground. Um, go ahead and bring it back. Do maybe one or two or three of you want to give the answers that you uh, thought of why they might not? This is a chance for us to talk. Uh, Jesus told this story as a way to stir up their creativity and their imagination for them to place themselves in the story. Can you drop the ambiance? Uh, Nick is going to go first, and then he's going to pass the mic to whoever's next. Addie, Albany, and I, there we go. Um, we all talked, and we had a similar response. Um, we, what did we say? I'm blanking now. We said, um, like, someone may not stop because they're, like, just afraid. Maybe, like, you don't know how that person's going to respond if you reach out mm-hmm. to help. Um, so kind of like a fear response, like, mm-hmm. not sure what's going to happen if we do stop. 
That's good. Joaquin has his hand up. Um, they might be uh, lazy. They might think it's not their problem and not want to do it. That's like, good. Not their problem. There's a lot of reasons it could be, and we don't really know what it was. Uh, the first thing when I was thinking through it, I thought of maybe a fear-based response. Like when you look at it and you realize like the, the gravity of the situation. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been around a body that was brutally beaten. Um, it's not a pleasant thing. It's not a pleasant sight. And so somebody just naked lying on the side of the road, uh, it's a bit disorienting. And so to look at that, though, in fear and think maybe there's more thieves waiting behind the boulders, this was a very real thing. Uh, maybe there were people that had left him there and then we're going to wait and see who would stop and then come out to attack them as well. This was not a road that you stopped on. If you were on it, you kept on moving. You didn't slow down and have a picnic on the side of the road. You got as fast as you could from one point to another. Uh, maybe thinking through, what if I get into this situation and I can't get out? Like, what if I start giving care and there's no exit strategy? I don't know how to get out of giving care in this situation. What if he requires more than I have to offer? After all, we're priests, not doctors. I thought through, maybe, maybe for him it was his pay, their pace of life. And so realize that if they're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, they probably had something to do with ministry on one side of their trip. Either they'd gone to Jerusalem in order to get purified so they could go back to their hometown and be able to do ministry there. And so if they were to touch a dead body, that would mean they'd have to go back to get purified again after figuring out where to take him. And that was going to be a whole thing. Uh, maybe they're on their way home after having just served and we're at a place where like, I am exhausted. I've just given my rotation of doing ministry for others. And man, I just want to get home and be back. Uh, thinking about this, if we put it in modern days, maybe their pace of life was just too much that there was no margin for them to stop and slow down and help the person in need. Or maybe it was doing the tally in their brain, figuring out what is this going to cost. You have to remember, uh, there was no access at this time, right? There was no welfare system. If you took them somewhere to get care for, somebody had to pay. And not only that, but you'd be carrying this human being along. And what would other people think? And struggling as you're walking, because they're walking and then they walk on the far side of the road, you've got to carry a beaten human body with you. Like that is going to be massive effort. Thinking of the cost of time, of energy, of reputation, definitely of comfort. Getting involved in the affairs of others who are needy always costs us comfort. And technically, technically the Torah never says that if you're walking down the road and you come across a body that's beaten on the side of the road, that you have to stop and give care. It doesn't technically say that. So you can technically follow the letter of the law and still pass by on the other side of the road. And now if you're listening to the story at the time for the first time, you'd expect the story to take a turn now because you've gotten too poor examples. You're aware, remember, the conversations around loving your neighbor. And so if you're going down the road and you see somebody on the ground who's beaten and you're like, you don't stop for them? Well, let's go ahead and figure out, like, that's probably not the hero of the story just yet. But who Jesus cast as the hero would thrown the entire audience off. He says, but a Samaritan 
as he traveled, came to where the man was. Uh, the Jewish listeners probably expected that there would be a third man, but it'd be a Jewish man, maybe a non-clergy sort of man who came along and did what was right. And then the point of the story would be, you don't have to be a professional believer in God in order to do what's right. You can be an everyday person. That's a great lesson. Thanks, Jesus. We'll carry on our way. But instead, he says there's a Samaritan. These were people that the Jewish people hated. This is akin to saying there's a, there's a U.S. veteran on the road, an Al-Qaeda soldier bends down next to him. Uh, they looked at them and said, these are half-blood people. If you're a Harry Potter fan, these are mud-blood. They're, they're, they're half-way creatures. We don't want them as part of our nation. Like, we don't want them politically as part of our people. We vote very differently. Both groups of people thought that they were God's chosen people. Both groups of people had their own temple set up. Both groups of people had their own way to worship. And they were at odds with each other. There's no way they would have expected this guy to be the hero. And so as soon as they cast that, you can picture them listening, and this teacher of the law's fist almost clenching up to be like, where is this going? But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, same as the other two did, he took pity on him or had compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Same two things the priest would use in the temple for their professional ministry. He now uses to heal the wounds of this man. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you had. This is the story Jesus tells. This man, the one who everybody hates, is the one who came. He saw the needy person on the side of the road and bent down and not just felt compassion, but actually had action that went with it. Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, mountaintop, I've been to the mountaintop sermon, he used this story and he says, I think what probably happened is the priest and the Levite, when they walk by, they ask, what will happen to me if I get involved in this man's situation? He's like, what I think the Samaritan asked was, what will happen to this man if I don't? Now, that sermon that he preached was the day before he was assassinated. So if you think this message is one that's a bit controversial... He was preaching it in the context of, will you help the sanitation workers who are being beaten on the side of the road? And he was calling to Christians to come alongside and bend down and help the sister and the brother in Christ that was on the side of the road, but had a different skin color. And he preached this sermon, and the next day caught a bullet for it. Jesus preached this sermon, and in a few weeks caught a cross for it. It is a scandalous message. But it's one that he's inviting every single follower of God into. So this guy acts, right? He bends down. He starts to clean the guy's wounds. He puts bandages on it. Then he picks him up and puts him on his donkey. So now he has to walk the rest of the way down this steep road. If he's traveling, it's probably for business and time is money and now he's lost both. And then he gets to the inn. And when we think inn, sometimes we think uh, like Holiday Inn, right? Or maybe it was it maybe Motel 6 or whatever, but like, there's something cool there. It was probably somebody's house who had an extra room. And so he shows up, and he opens a free line of credit with this guy and says, hey, I'm going to give you two whole day's wages, two denarii. Take that, and if you owe anything, if he owes anything else, racks up any other expenditures while I'm gone, 
I'll cover that as well when I return. Now you might expect that as people heard that story, they're like, oh, now we know what to do. But it doesn't quite go that way. Jesus asked this question next. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The guy first asked the question, catch this, who is my neighbor? That was the question that we had this whole conversation about. What, what kind of people am I supposed to love in this way? And Jesus flips the question around and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He asked it in a way that he can't say it's the religious priest. He can't say it's the God-fearing Levite. He has to say the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring it in himself to say the Samaritan is the one who loved the way that God told us to love because he had compassion and actually dealt with care for the one who was hurting. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I can't imagine the tension that was in the room as Jesus just kind of drops the mic and walks away. You don't know if the guy ever does it. But remember, the, the call at the beginning was this beautiful love of God with all that we are, love of human being with all that we are, to anyone in need. Uh, the hope is that as we look at these stories, right, they're not just stories we look at and then go back into the real world, but these stories portray the world as it is. That the people of God are called to be people of healing, of hope, who give care to those in need. What kind of people in need? anyone. To answer the question, who is my neighbor, uh, the answer was simple in this story. Any human who is in need is your neighbor. Uh, we don't know if the guy on the side of the road was Samaritan or if he was Jewish. We have no idea. Normally we tell that by dialect or how people dress, right? And he was knocked out cold and naked. So we're like, I don't know where he's from, but I know he has a need. Clearly hurting. How do we step in? To be honest, this story has exhausted me in the past. It's exhausted me. Uh, when I attempt this kind of neighbor love without the love of God actually overflowing out of me, when I try to just conjure up all this constant care for others, it is exhausting. Have you guys ever been there? Where you know the right thing to do is to care, and so you just try to, will you, I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing, and I'm going to enter into this way of life of caring for others, but it's not coming out of an overflow of love of God that we're receiving and able to pour out into others, where we're trying to earn something by acting right and end up irritated and frustrated and depleted. And then we say it must not work. Even in this story, part of the beauty of it is that there's a community that does the work. It's not just one person. The Samaritan stops, but then he takes him to an innkeeper, and the innkeeper does his role in the story. Uh, we were never asked to do it all, but we are asked to be involved, to give presence, to give up comfort, to give up some of the costs that it takes to care for others. Yes, we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus should be taking on the needs of others because that's what Christ did for us. But if we don't do it in that order where we first receive from God to then care, give care to others, we will end up exhausted and depleted. When we just try to conjure up the ability to do this on our own, it doesn't last long. But that's not where we have to end. The second uh, thing this story has done quite often 
is it exposed my own excuses and my lack of love. So when I look at this story, far too often, I see myself in the place of the Levite and the priest. Oh, that's somebody else. Uh, I got out in a parking garage. I was in Gilbert. So it's supposed to be safe in Gilbert. Thanks, you Gilbert people. It's supposed to be safe there. You're the safest city in the world. Um, and so we were in Gilbert, and we are getting in the parking garage, and I'm getting out, and I hear, like, shrieks uh, of, like, girl fight. And so I'm like, what is that? Is that like... And so I'm sitting, and I know that I probably should do something. There's these two, two girls, girls and it's like hair, hair pulling, pulling, slapping, name calling, like full on, on. Like, they're, they're in a, in a fight. fight. On a good day, I could probably separate them a little bit or at least let them know somebody else is there so they back up from each other. But what runs through my head is that I'm on my way to meet with two missional community leaders and I'm already running a little bit late. And so what I do is I close the door to my truck and instead of walking towards the two people in crisis that are having one of the worst days of their life where they're having a physical fight in the Gilbert parking lot, in the parking garage, I quietly walk on my way over to the chop shop. Like the spirit often does, right? I was fully intending not to go back there because I was like, they can handle it. And how bad are they really going to hurt each other? I was like almost to the door of the chop shop. And I was like, man, I should probably see if they're all right, right? That's how long it takes for the spirit to convict me. And so then I walk back uh, and then the one, they're both gone. Car is gone, two humans are gone. They must have sorted it out or one walked. Totally missed any opportunity to be involved or be a blessing or be a help, even though Jesus had me right there, right? So what's the call in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. And what did I do? Blessed are those that duck and hide and go meet with other MC leaders. Right, it exposes that lack of love. And sure, there's plenty of other stories where I do love and I do care and I do get involved, but in this story, I see enough of myself to know that it's very possible that I will see a need and go somewhere else. I will see a need and walk by. It's not flattering, but doesn't that reflect our hearts sometimes? That we're like, what happens if I get involved? What happens if I say something? Is the cost going to be too great? How long do I have to be involved? What if I don't know all the answers? And the call of Jesus still is to love anyway. Love your neighbor. And then the last thing I would say, right, it, it can exhaust you if you're dealing with it just frivolously and just trying to throw it in your life. But when you deeply consider it, it starts to expose some of your own sin and your own mess. But the last thing I would just say is that it excites me for what could be. This story genuinely excites me for what could be if the people of God, right, if, if we, even a small group of 20-some people said, hey, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. And I'm going to set out to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then anyone who is in need, I'm going to flinch towards love and service and care instead of excuses and my own reasoning where I don't do it. Imagine what could take place in a city with pockets of people. We're not the only followers of Jesus. With pockets of people, if the church began to be known as those who loved first, not who judged first. Right? For those who gave care and consideration and time and present to the lonely, the lost, the left out, those who were needy. And I think Jesus tells this story to get our creativity going as well. To say, imagine what if. Like what would your neighborhood look like if there's a pocket of people planted in that neighborhood who all, because of the love God has shown to them, start to show that love to others.
Like our houses become what Paul imagined, these little temples spread throughout neighborhoods where the love of Jesus is clearly seen. What could Mesa look like? What could our neighborhood look like? What would our families look like if we said, I'm willing to accept the cost and the lack of comfort in order to love in our families the way that Christ has loved us? What would the depth of our trust of God start to look like when we consistently stepped out and he met us in that place time and time again? What if neighbor love, like Jesus is describing it, began to inform all of our major decisions in life? What if we saw the house that we were going to move into is how could I love my neighbors, not first what's my resale value? What if we decided, how am I going to spend my time? What's the most loving way for me to spend my time? And maybe there'd be a break in the variety of work, TV, and play. Create some margin in our lives where we're able to help, love, and serve. Maybe the way we use our houses, we'd start exercising hospitality to those who are different, not just safe. How would we engage with the poor that are in our neighborhoods and not just say, I wonder how they got there, or what a shame but step alongside them as Jesus invites? How do we engage with the rich and not just overlook them saying they must have it all together, so uh, let me go somewhere else? How do we step in to the needy places, those who are very different, maybe even seen as enemies, and show the love of God in those places? I'm gonna give us one more conversation, then I'll pull us back for one final point. Who are the pockets of people that need this kind of love in your city? Are there groups of people traditionally overlooked by churches or seen as enemies? What would it look like to show the love of Jesus there? And so just turn back to those groups that you were with before and ask that question. Who could use this kind of neighbor love in the city you live in? I am very well uh, aware that the needs of the world and the needs of neighbors and even the needs in our own lives can seem absolutely overwhelming at times. When we grasp the gravity of the situation of so many people, it, it can be simply overwhelming. So how, how, how do we ever have this kind of love for others? And I think there'd be one point missing if I didn't make it. And it's that we can only show this kind of neighbor love to others when we realize that Jesus, the true and greater Good Samaritan, has shown that love to us. As you guys know, our family uh, recently changed dynamics, right? We had three kids and now we have five. I'm not going into the whole story, but we uh, uh, brought in some kids that were part of our missional community. Their parents weren't able to care for them. Uh, and so one of the questions that was bubbling up and coming around was, hey, will you guys uh, be willing to give care to these kids? And my answer, I'm not joking. Kaylee, what was my answer? No, didn't pray about it, didn't think about it, didn't want to mess up where our family seemed like it was at a good place. We were able to do the kind of things we wanted. I could afford all our kids. Like all these things, uh, we could all fit in one vehicle, which is a really nice thing. Like I was going through the list. My time, uh, my kids like to do stuff that I like to do. That is a great age that is very different than toddlers. Three and four-year-olds still like to do what they want to do. Uh, and that's it. And I don't overly like to do what they like to do. Um, all these things going in my head. And I just straight up said, no, like I don't want to do that. And then God uses this story, right, reading through it again. And I realized that I was thinking ahead to what the other things I wanted to do, the cost I didn't want to pay. 
And it would be just like me going along and stepping over, and it's as vivid as this, those two little boys on my way to do ministry somewhere else. And it wasn't like a conjuring up, like a guilt feeling that washed over me. It was like, oh, I should do this now. But the image that came to my mind was that Jesus has already done all these things for me. He was inviting me to participate in neighbor love, not just for him, but with him. All those things that we see the Good Samaritan does for this man that's on the side of the road, Jesus has done for us. He went down the dangerous road that didn't just lead from Jericho to Jerusalem, but led to death. He absorbed the cost that it would be to set us free. And in the beauty of the story, he also promises to return. Like Jesus has done all the things that the Samaritan was supposed to do. And as I considered that, as I thought through that, as I prayed and meditated in here, it was like God was saying, you'd be stepping over them in order to do something else, to let someone else. And it wasn't just caring for them, but as a family, we processed through, we're like, how would we not love our neighbors, our friends, our brother and sister this way and bring someone into our home? And as I reflected on Jesus as the true and greater good Samaritan, it shifted my heart to want to be involved. It shifts your heart to want to be involved, to be a part of what God's doing in the lives of others, not out of obligation, but out of joy. So yes, life of serving is messy. Yes, life of serving is hard. Yes, life of serving requires us to have love from God pouring out to love of neighbor. But that's exactly the life that we're called into as the church. That's exactly the people that we're called to be as followers of Jesus, who left the safe place to gather in those who are weary, wounded, and unable to care for themselves to bring them to safety. Will we reflect love the same way in the places that we live, work, and play. God, we're grateful for stories like this that remind us of your great love for us. The beauty of a story that exposes our insecurities and our weaknesses, but also gives us hope. And so I ask as my friends go out throughout this week, would this story stay in the back of their minds? Would they find their hearts filled with courage, the gentle conviction of the Spirit leading them to lay down their lives in the way that you laid down yours? To offer hope for those who seem hopeless because Jesus, you are hope. To offer healing to those who are injured because Jesus, you bring healing. To offer life to those experiencing death because Jesus, you are life. Do the work you do, Jesus. We love you. We ask this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.